I think it's been one of those mornings. One of those mornings. Where we've been concerned a lot with the practical and the physical. So before I preach this morning, I just want us to spend a couple of minutes getting back in touch with God. Because we're about to hear from His Word. Not just so that we can say that we've been to church and heard a message, but so that we can take what we hear and apply it to change our life, not just on Sundays, but on Mondays, Tuesdays. Because God doesn't live in this building. He lives in you and me. And if we don't take what he does for us, into our workplaces and our homes and our schools and our cafes and wherever we go, then there's not much point to come on Sundays. So I'm going to get everybody just to close their eyes for a minute. Relax. Open your mind. Open your spirit. Lord, we're here in your presence this morning. Allow us to hear what we need in our lives from you. Let your word be a powerful force to change our futures and to help us change the futures of others. To allow them to come to know you and experience your love, your grace, your mercy and your power. Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've been going through the book of Galatians all year. I thought it might take a couple of months. But who knows, this year went really fast. So I suspect that we're only at two months. I think it's been January, February, November. And uh, I think we're about to hit our fourth month, which is Christmas. So, who, who knows the basic story of the book of Galatians? It's, a, it's, it's a, a text message that Paul has written to the church in Galatia. Now, I, wa- I want us to think back. It's a letter. Five chapters. What are the six? I don't know, we haven't got that far yet. Six chapters. And it's quite long. And if somebody sent a text message that long today... I think most of us would probably only get to the first paragraph and think this is way too much work and delete it. But we're looking at a time, and, and I'm telling you this so that we can perhaps understand Paul's frustration. A bit. He's not in Galatia. He's hundreds of miles away, and yet news has got to him that there are people who have come to the church there and are preaching false doctrine. Now, they're not teaching something really weird like you know you've got to worship the devil and he's got horns and a forked tail and stuff like that they're, they're preaching the gospel the same as he preached to them but they're adding just little things which have taken power of that gospel is this going to be a problem i can pick up the other one if it gets too bad and he fears for their safety and so he writes a letter because 
To travel there, I mean, he's busy with, the, with churches elsewhere. In fact, he might be busy in prison. I can't remember where he wrote this one. Um, but, I mean, we've just come back from a conference in Kuala Lumpur. We flew there, it took seven hours, and we spent a week there and we came back and virtually nothing had changed here, it was really good, except that more people had come, which is even better. But if you can imagine Paul trying to get where we went in his day, to get to Kuala Lumpur and back would have taken him the best part of a year. And so it was easier to write letters, which he did. And so this, and back then, of course, that was the accepted form of communication. Who here has written a letter in the last 12 months? About six people. I mean, on paper, put in an envelope and posted, not, not written it in Word and cut and pasted it into an Outlook. That doesn't count. Or even sent it as an attachment. We don't, we don't tend to do that as much. In fact, letters, whose letter was more than a page long? No. So you didn't think of writing six chapters in a letter. So we're a bit out of touch with what Paul's doing here. But we need to understand he's very frustrated because he's miles away from where he needs to be. He's got people that he loves and cares for being led astray by a group of people who have destroyed the, the, the strength and the essence of the gospel message that he's preached them. And so... We take up in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 12, we see Paul pleading with these people to understand what the danger is that they're in and where he's coming from. And this, from the Message Bible, says, my dear friends, and I can sense underneath he's got this, (sighs) right, okay, count to 10, and my dear friends, what I would really like you to do is to try to put yourselves in my shoes To the same extent that I, when I was with you, put myself in yours. You were very sensitive and kind then. You did not come down on me personally. You were well aware that the reason I ended up preaching to you was that I was physically broken. And so prevented from continuing my journey, I was forced to stop with you. This is how I came to preach to you. And don't you remember that even though... Taking in a sick guest was most troublesome for you. You chose to treat me as well as you would have treated an angel of God, as well as you would have treated Jesus himself if he'd visited us. You. Sorry. What has happened to the satisfaction you felt at that time? There were some of you who, if possible, would have given your very eyes to me. That is how deeply you cared. And now have I suddenly become your enemy simply by telling you the truth? I can't believe it. Now, you can imagine how Paul would have been if the telephone had just been invented. There would have been a sizzling message going down the telephone wires, because we're talking about telephones with cords now. We're not going too far into technological territory. And you can see in that letter, he's hurting. He's hurt and he's in pain because of how things have turned out that he can't really change because he's too far away. And so... He's pleading with them. You can sense this, you know, let's understand the relationship we had. I hope you're understanding my spirit because I can't be there. So I'm writing to you the best way I know how. But even in the pain and the hurt that he expresses, you can see that 
He's being really sneaky. He's actually teaching them things about the gospel message to help them discern whether his message is the correct message or that the false teacher's one is. Because who knows, if you, you get a letter from an apostle, you're happily having church and you've had these new preachers come in and you really like what they're saying because you've been dying to get circumcised for ages now. Um, and uh, Paul writes a letter and says, Don't you dare! What do you think you're doing? Didn't you understand the message? And you sort of think, oh, they've made him angry. I wonder if we've discovered something he didn't want us to know. And so you've got all these conflicting things going. How do you tell which message is the right message? And so Paul is very cleverly giving them instructions on how to tell the real gospel message from the false gospel message. The first thing he shows them is that a, general, a genuine gospel ministry is culturally flexible. He says, I put myself in your shoes. I love that there's a story about a church in the 1960s. Who remembers the 60s? A few of us. There was a very uptight church in uh, San Diego, California. Everybody who came to church wore a suit and tie. And they had pews and Bibles stacked at the end and it was a very neat church and one day they were just starting their service and a hippie walked in no shoes, ripped jeans peace t-shirt long hair, dreadlocks hadn't washed for a week or possibly more and this hippie cheekily walked down the length of the church right to the front and there was a gap on the front row And he went down here and he sat cross-legged on the floor in front of the front row. And everybody was, it's like, what? What's going on here? And suddenly to their relief, they saw the deacon at the back, who was a very well-dressed elderly gentleman of about 70. And he strode purposefully down the front of the church. And they're all thinking, this guy has got his comeuppance right now. He strides to the front and he goes up to this guy and he lowers himself to the floor and sits cross-legged next to him. And everybody else was stunned. But you see, this guy had recognised that it wasn't about what they wore to church. This guy had come to start a relationship or continue a relationship, nobody knew, with God. And he wanted to make sure that he felt as comfortable as possible to do that. Everybody else had forgotten what the real gospel message was. And so Paul here is making that very point. That when it comes to the gospel message, we have to be flexible in everything we do to present that message except one thing, the gospel. We can change everything. It doesn't matter what we wear. It doesn't matter what songs we sing. It doesn't matter what language we preach in. It, those things are irrelevant. They're part of our culture. But we need to be embracing of all others. Do you know what sort of culture C3 Church has? It doesn't matter where you go. We've just been to Kuala Lumpur, I mean we've been to churches in uh, Hawaii, in the States, well it is in the States, but Fiji, been to a Fijian service where they actually did it in Fijian, didn't understand a word of it, but guess what the culture was? The culture of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we, while we're called to not have 
a culture which divides people. We're called to have a culture which draws people in. And the culture isn't about us, it's about God. So we're not tied to cultural distinctives. We don't have to have customs based on our upbringing to make us right with God. Sometimes it makes us right with other people, but who, who, who knows? The gospel isn't about other people. The gospel is about you and God. So we need to be truly capable of living among the people that we're seeking to reach and adopting their ways and loving them. And most of us cringe at the idea that we would adopt the ways of ungodly heathens because their ways are obviously wrong. But if we're going to reach them, what's wrong is their understanding of the gospel. It doesn't matter what else they do. And so we need to be excited about presenting the gospel in a way that doesn't impose cultural restrictions on people. Now this was an important point for Paul to make because the heretical teachers were telling the Galatians that the gospel was really great but to really get in good with God you had to be circumcised and you had to eat the right foods and dress properly in the Jewish tradition otherwise you weren't truly saved. And so Paul's just snuck this one in here to say okay can you see there's a subtle difference here. I walked in your shoes and so it needs to be flexible. We need to get rid of a legalistic mindset, a works righteous mindset because it becomes inflexible. People who are legalistic worry about how people dress, how people speak, how people act and they have lots and lots of rules for holiness. I mean, Jared isn't holy because he's got a t-shirt. Yeah, uh, Bill and, and um, what's your name again? Barry. Um, <laughs> they've, they've got shirts with collars, so they're right. Mike's not holy either. In fact, most of you are pretty unholy, I've noticed. You know, Will's okay. Reuben just scrapes in. I'm not sure about a polo shirt. But, um, yeah, so, I, oh, Stephen's doubly, he's got a T-shirt and a shirt with a collar. He's been hedging his bets in case he goes to a different church and you know, T-shirts are, are holy there. So, you see, we can get all caught up in the idea of how we dress, what we do is part of our holiness. Culturally, it's actually about how we attract people and who we are as a tribe, if you like. It's interesting that after putting themselves himself in their shoes, the second thing that Paul said is, I want you to be like me. You sort of think, well, hang on, is he contradicting himself? He's just said that he's, he was like them and now he wants them to be like him. But we actually have to be, be careful and follow up what he said because what he said is, this is how I acted towards you. I want you to do the same to other people. So he's not saying after all, I was culturally flexible and I was a bit like you, so now you need to be like I was. So you have to act like I acted and be culturally flexible to other people. We need to be transparent because become like me is not about dressing like me, looking like me, speaking like me. What we ask people to do when we introduce them to Jesus is to prove that Jesus is real by who we are. Who knows that most of the time when you're speaking to people about God, your words don't matter that much. People can look beyond your words. 
You can say to people, I love God and I love people. But you can act towards them in a way that shows them that you don't really like them. Really love people. I think you're a bit ugly, but God will love you anyway. I mean, who would say that to a person? Especially a beautiful person. But often, people hear our words. I I love God. I I live according to his statutes. And uh, I'm an honest person. Monday, they see you on the news, convicted for fraud. Are they going to believe the words that you spoke to them? They're going to look and say, well, you can't trust anything he says. Look what happened. And so people are looking beyond what we're saying to how we're living. Our lives need to be transparent so that people can actually see that we act out of what we believe in. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, you know, follow my example. You, I came to you and I was transparent. I showed my love for you by not judging the way that you acted, by not getting upset about the fact that your customs were different. I fitted in with you because I recognised you as valuable to God and I recognised that my customs, my traditions were not important for me to spread the gospel to you. I had to become like you. And that's where we often fall down. We think because we're a church that does things a certain way that those ways actually make us holy. They don't. See, we have, we have a culture where we have music, we have good coffee, we like um, that sort of cafe culture at the front of our church reflects that culture. But that's not about holiness, that's about reaching the people outside of our church. It's about fitting in with the world. Some people say, well, why are you trying to be like them? Because that's how you attract people. We're not diluting the gospel message. We're not pretending that we want to be morally the same or whatever it is, but we need to reach out to people. If suddenly Nord Parade turned into a a totally different environment where they, I don't know, it was all Texas beef barbecues instead of coffee shops or something, we would adapt and and have a Texas beef barbecue out the front. In fact, we might do that anyway. (laughs) I can see there's a change in the wind here. If, a, if, a, if, people, if the music industry changed so that young people today started listening to hymns from John Wesley, we'd start playing those hymns. I mean, not that young people in the world listen to religious music much anyway, but at least it as parallels what's happening in terms of the, the look and feel of, it, of our music. And so it's, it's not, it doesn't make us different. We're not, we don't compete with Hillsong for instance. Well, a lot of Christians think we do. They sort of think there's a fight going on in the music world to see who can come out on top. People are afraid of putting out music because other people are going to compare it to Hillsong. And we get this, this competitive thing going. It's not about that. I mean, we need to give them a pat on the back and say they are doing a, a fabulous job and they are attracting people out of the world who relate to their message. Now, the thing is, we haven't been called to help Hillsong. They're doing all right on their own. We've been called to do something which is distinctly different, but only because it attracts different people. There's enough different people out there, they're not all going to go to Hillsong. Strangely enough, they're not all going to come to C3. I can't work that out, but... (laughs) 
but I'm, uh, one-eyed as I might be, I'm also sensible enough to know that our distinction cuts out a certain number of people. But we've, we're called to do the best we can with who we are because who knows that our distinctive is caused by you guys. It's who is in our church. It's who is the church that makes it different. Our church is different because guess what? We've got different people in our church. You guys are not down at St. Bart's. The people down there are different in a good way. But their makeup, their feel, their flavour is because of who they are. And they should be celebrating that and we should be celebrating that. We shouldn't look down on them because they're not our flavour. You know, they've got an old stone building. Old-fashioned, probably. It's not the building. We've got an old stone building. It's not what the building looks like at what goes on inside the building that actually matters. It's who the people are, what our dreams are, what our goals for our community, what our purpose is that makes a difference. And this is what, this is what Paul's saying, be like me. Be somebody that you could see to say... If he follows Jesus, Mike follows Jesus, I want to be like him. I can see what he's like. Loves his wife. Great designer. Great that comes to prayer meetings. He's, a, he's, a, he's somebody I would follow. Because I see, not what he says, I mean, he doesn't speak a lot. In fact, dragging information out of him is sometimes quite tough. But that doesn't matter because I... I can see Mike's heart. I, I know when you, when you speak, he, he's, he doesn't hide anything. He's who he is. His heart's on his sleeve. Under the cuff, perhaps. But he's not a false person. And that's, that's what Paul's saying. You need to be like me, somebody who is transparent, somebody who lives, breathes, and acts the gospel message. And the third thing is that a true gospel ministry, and you're not going to like this, a true gospel ministry looks for opportunities in hardships. One of the things that we tend to gloss over in this, and, and yet is quite a strong point that Paul makes, is he didn't intend to go to Galatia. He had no interest in a church there. He got ill. He was on his way somewhere else. He got ill and had to stop. And while he was there, he thought, well, I'm ill, I've had to stop, let's go and convert some people. Now, his illness must have been fairly severe because he talks about it a fair bit and he talks about the struggle they went with through to actually look after him. He said, I was a burden to you. And yet out of that burden, out of that sickness, he actually started a massive church. Because there was an opportunity there in the illness that befell him. And we're actually called to look for opportunity in hardship. I think we have this modern, modern day idea that believing in God, having a passion for God, coming to church, praying, doing all of those things ensures us a life of leisure and ease. In fact, we often pray that nothing goes wrong in our life. Sometimes God prays that something does. Because sometimes it's out of hardship, it's out of, out of deprivation, it's, it's out of something unexpected that we don't necessarily think is a good thing at the time, that great things come out of it. 
people who have you know, ha- had illnesses or car accidents or things have ended up meeting people who have taken them places or that they've managed to form relationships with that have changed their lives, that have, that have done things. I mean, I look at my life. Some of the really horrible things in my life turned out really well. I mean, I was a reasonably good student in high school. But when I get my, got my, now this is going to make me sound old, um, my matriculation results, which is year 12, and what are they, what are the SACE results now? Um, I'd failed my top subject. I was an A-grade English student. And the school contributed 25% of your mark as part of your exam results. And my teacher told me that he'd given me 25 out of 25. So when I'd gone into the exam, judging by my results, I'd got zero for everything. Now, considering I was reasonably confident with the exam, that was, you can imagine that was a bit of a blow. As a result, um, and I I assume you do the same now, you you put in requests to courses you want to do in university. And back then, you'd put in about 25. And so the top one I wanted to do was medicine, then architecture, then all these things, all the way down to uh, TAFE courses that required um, year 10 to get into. I got not one single reply to any of those applications. I don't know what happened, but I I got to March and I wasn't invited to take a place in any university at all. No college, no small school, no kindergarten, nothing. (laughs) And I I was seriously depressed. I thought, you know... You know, end of school, I managed all right and everything. I mean, and maths was my, my worst subject. I got a C in maths one and a B in maths two. I don't know how I did that. And so my mother, who was a very practical person, slapped me around the head a bit, uh, only mentally. Not, she didn't abuse me. <laughs> got to be so careful these days. Um, and made me go down to Flinders University and I just went to the registra- registry, went to the registrar's office and said, are there any courses I can do? Now, luckily for me, what happened was that at the time they were horribly short of science um, students and so they said, no worries, sign here, you're doing a science degree. I said, yes, always wanted to be a scientist. <laughs> Not really. Um, but you know what the funny thing was? I did first year and thought, I love this. This is amazing. I went on to do three years of biology, did an honours degree and worked for 20 years as a molecular biologist. And I loved it. It was absolutely amazing. If I had got accepted, I'd have probably done something like architecture, which I still wouldn't have minded, I don't think. But out of the depths of something that was really, really discouraging at the time, I had a career that I absolutely enjoyed. But at the time, if you'd told me that that was going to happen, I'd have probably kicked you. And that, that was unfortunate. That our church started out of very unfortunate circumstances that you know, put so much stress on Vicky and I that we were stick thin. Luckily, I still am. <laughs> and so is she, of course. But out of that sprang something which had life in it out of something that was dead. And so 
we've got to actually look at the fact that God doesn't promise to bless us by removing suffering, but he blesses us through our suffering. Not so that we might not suffer, but so that through our suffering we can become like Jesus. And he uses our suffering to bring about good. Now sometimes this involves circumstances like Paul's illness, but other times it's actually just God moving to work in our character or do things that we don't actually see quite as obvious. So I wanted to do something this morning that involves our cultural backgrounds. Because who knows, there are, three, there are three sorts of people who come into church. The first group of people are those who came to Christianity from another religious belief system. The second group are people who have come straight out of the world. It's like me. We, 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 Vicky and I weren't going to church anywhere. We had no intention of going to a church. Somebody invited us along one Sunday and uh, we refused. The next Sunday they invited us again and then said they were going to wait outside until we got there. And because they were friends we thought it would be a bit mean if we didn't turn up because they'd be waiting outside the whole time. So we just went along. It wasn't at all what we expected. We ended up continuing to go along to that. We got saved and joined the church out of no religious affiliation. The third group of people are those who have grown up in church, know no other life and have all, all their childhood and adult life have actually been involved, if not in this church, but in a church somewhere else. And so you get those three people. And so you actually get three different sorts of cultural background involved in your church. I mean, Vicky and, and I were involved in multi-level marketing at the time, which has some very good sort of character-building things and, and, and good plans for people's futures and all the rest and so we tried to actually bring that into church life now some of that was a good idea and some of it was not but we learned along the way what part of that to actually discard because although church has to be culturally flexible what we discovered was that the gospel doesn't change so we had to make sure that whatever we did actually revolved around the gospel we've got people who come in from other religious beliefs, which is often even harder to change because they bring things into the church which are often actually the complete opposite of what happens, in Christ- the complete opposite of the gospel message. And so they actually have to let go of an awful lot of stuff to accept the gospel message. And the people who grow up in church have a, a slightly different, but I would say even greater problem in that at some stage they actually have to make a personal decision. They've grown up believing what their parents believe. They've grown up in a group of believers who have told them everything they know. They're comfortable with God. They're comfortable with church. And yet at some point they have to develop their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's not easy. Because you actually have to work out some things that nobody else can work out for you. And so, uh, can I get us all to stand? And you can participate in this to any degree you like. But I encourage you, because I think it's, it's important 
that we allow God and the Holy Spirit to actually move in these areas. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're somebody who has come to church, and not necessarily this one, but if you're visiting, but if you've come to church out of another religious belief system, I would like you to sit down. And if you're standing around somebody who has just sat down, then I want you just to gently lay your hand on their shoulders. And we're just all, as a church, going to pray for them. I mean, if there's nobody near you, don't, you're allowed to step out of your seat. There's no rule here that says you have to stay in your seat. You can go and join a, a group of people if you feel emboldened to do so. But you don't have to. Lord, we thank you right now that you just remove the cultural shackles of any other faith that impedes your gospel. Lord, I thank you that it doesn't matter how we dress, how we look, how we speak. The words we use are irrelevant as long as the gospel message remains the same. Our gospel message is a gospel of grace. Jesus Christ died so that we may have eternal life. If we accept him and his sacrifice, then we are saved. Lord, I rebuke any belief, any devil, any world system that tries to add or take away from that gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you can all stand again, those people who, who are, were saved straight out of the world, who have never had a, involved in religion before they came to church, if you guys can sit down, a lot more of those. So quickly, you might have to move around and find somebody. There's, there's a lot more of these people. And Lord, we thank you for these people. We thank you that they have actually broken the chains of bondage that has kept them out of the kingdom of God and been released into your presence, your power and your mercy. Lord, we pray right now that no vestige or trace of worldly thinking is present. That your gospel has overtaken these people and grows unchecked whole and complete in their lives we pray that you bless them give them increase in Jesus name Amen and if you've grown up in church you can all stand up again if you've grown up in church and you've actually had to make that transition from what everybody else believes into believing what you believe, if you can sit down, we want to pray for you. Okay, you might have to shuffle around some here. There seems to be a preponderance on the left, or your, my right, your left. And Lord, we speak into the hearts of these people. We dig down deep to find that relationship with you we banish and rebuke any sense of collective 
belief. We focus in on that intimate relationship between person and God. Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill them afresh today. We ask you to reconfirm their relationship with Jesus Christ. One-on-one. Alone. With our Lord. We thank you, God, that that bond, that relationship is strengthened day by day. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can all all be seated again. There's one group of people I missed out of that. And that's people who have not heard the gospel message or accepted it personally. See, Jesus Christ died so that we may have eternal life. But our road to being a follower of Christ starts with a single step where we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour and that we want to follow him. Now, different churches do it differently. But in our church, that step, we believe, is a public one. Christianity isn't a hidden religion. It isn't even a solitary religion. If we believe in Jesus Christ but don't associate with other people who believe in Jesus Christ, God says we're like that servant who got the talent and went away and hid it, didn't do anything with it. He said... Go away, you wicked one. We're actually called to be in community together. And the first step to being involved in that community is to actually make a stand and say, yes, I want to follow you, God. I want to turn away from all other distractions and be a Christ follower. Now, if you've never done that before and you actually want to take advantage of that opportunity to become a follower of Jesus Christ... I'm going to show you how to do that in just a sec. If you've done it before, but you've lived your life in a way that you realize that you haven't actually meant what you did, that you you want to do it again and be firm in your decision this time. God doesn't judge us on how many times we make that decision. But he says, you know, every time... You make it if you fall away. If you ask for, repent, for repentance, if you ask for forgiveness, I will always take a step back towards you and invite you back into my presence. So if you're either of those, if you've done it before and you really feel that you need to recommit that decision or you've never done that and you would like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to ask right now, if everybody close their eyes, bow their heads so there's no one looking around initially. And if you are here and you would like to make that decision, I would like you to put up your hand in a moment so that I can see it. Once I've seen your hand, you can put it down. I'll acknowledge that. And then I'm going to get everybody to stand up. I'm going to ask you to come out the front and we're going to pray a prayer together which just states that you accept in front of these witnesses that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour and that you want to follow him. It's as simple as that. We've got somebody who will give you a a Bible and help you uh, take the next steps into that path of walking with Jesus Christ.
But initially, it's just acknowledging the fact that you need to make that decision. So while every eye is closed, every head bowed, if that's you this morning, you want to, want to make that decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, just quickly lift your hand while nobody's looking around and I'll acknowledge that. Is there anybody here this morning who wants to make that decision? Raise your hand, nice and high. 